Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Hello and welcome to Inward Book Club. This could be one of the last shows we do under the current branding, Michael. Good. Does that mean we don't have to read any of these crappy books anymore? No, I'm afraid not. That that I, that I cannot spare you. But what we will be doing is we're going to go for a new brand. I don't know if Alex has even mentioned this to you, but we're rebranding Book Club. As what? Book Club. Oh, good. Good. Is this one of those like, branded exercises that companies go through? It's really expensive and you think, <laughs> well, just look like what you well, did when it started. Why did you do that? Yeah, probably, yeah. Good. It's been all over freelancers in far-flung corners of the world because you know how tight we are about that sort of thing. Yes, fair enough. But they've done a nice job. And we're on the final furlong of Art of the Impossible by Stephen Kotler. I have to confess, Mike, uh, I've kind of enjoyed the first two thirds of this book. And then the last third, the more I've thought about it and the more I've read, the more I've thought, uh, meh, as the teenagers would say, M-E-H, meh. What do I think? It's an all right book. It's just not my kind of book, really, is the problem I have with it. I'd hoped we'd have got more practical towards the business end. Yeah, it's good, though. It is, and it's been interesting. It made for some interesting, thoughtful dog walks, this book. But it's not life-changing for me. I'm not monumentally enriched. I'm not a better salesman for it. I don't think I'm going to look back at Christmas and look back at my year, get a little whiskey and sit down and think, Phew, glad I read that. It's really changed my game. That's not going to happen, is it? No. Let's talk about it, though. No, nah, no, it's not. It's like I said ages ago. It's like, a, it's like a PhD paper, really. Yeah, I mean, he's a serious journalist and it's a serious piece of writing. Yes, you can tell. You can tell. About a useful topic and he writes well and his research is deep and it's thoughtful, but what he hasn't quite delivered in the book is, listen, this is how you become mega at it. He's sort of done a treatise of mega people. It's good though. So uh, chapter 17 is about long haul creativity. I wrote, doesn't really apply to many of the people we work with. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? And he comes back to some really key thoughts, you know, of these people that are creative over and over again. You, and it is fascinating when you think about how does somebody like Bob Dylan's a great example. I'm not a Bob Dylan fan. I don't like Bob Dylan. He doesn't do it for me one bit. The guy has got a Nobel Prize, and a lot of people will say he's the great songwriter of all songwriters. And he has maintained creativity for a ridiculous amount of time, when actually most artists are creatively done by the time they're about 27. Okay. Which is phenomenal. And what he's talking about is how do some of these artists develop that creativity that's almost endless. People like David Hockney has created great work all the way through his career, whereas most artists are done by their late 20s. Creative people. And he talks about exercise, big chunks of downtime, long walks. I don't know if Bob Dylan's a big exercise. You think Bob Dylan's working out in the gym? Oh, I'm working out. There's always going to be some good that, Johnny. There's always going to be some people, though, who don't need to do that, you know? Yeah. Whereas, actually, he's taking daily exercise is a good idea. Yeah, of course it is. 
Of course it is. Of course it is. Here's an interesting one. Take long walks without music or podcasts. I know you always listen to podcasts on long walk. It I always surprises me you do I, that. I don't. I, I will alternate between listening to books and then often I'll just walk unfettered, just me and the dogs. Right, fair enough. And I do find that very therapeutic and I, I find you get much more headspace. You know, yeah. you know, you know, mindfulness is a very current and modern sort of phrase, but taking the dog for a walk is a very mindful thing to do. Yeah, well, you got, uh, particularly when you've not got your headphones on, you have to spend some time with your own head. Yeah, completely agree, yeah. But I always find, it's funny, if I did that tomorrow, or if, if we, tomorrow was a working day and I walked the dog at lunch and I went out for an hour, came back, actually, you always, I always find I'm more productive in the afternoon. Yeah, I think you've got to exercise. I mean, you know I do. I exercise every single Me day, too. full stop. Every single day. I'm much more, I would say, in the last month or two, I've become much more focused on that again. Well, do you know what I've started doing, actually? I'm going to put a LinkedIn post about this. Is Do you get up at 4am and work out? Uh, yeah, not that. I do that anyway, <laughs> but I, I've started working for 40 minutes, then taking a five-minute break. What do you do in your five-minute break? Uh, I do stretching for my sciatic nerve. Right, you just get on your floor and do a bit of a stretch. Yeah, and I've done it this week. I felt absolutely razor this week. Why? Because you've only worked in 40-minute bursts. I just thought I'd try it. It just came into my head as I was exercised. I'd try that. And i tell you what, I felt very, very sharp this week. I've had a very, very good week. Well, they talk about this method called the Pomodoro technique, don't they? Where I read the book about years ago where you have a tomato timer and basically you work for 20 minutes deep. You do not do anything other than that which you're working on. Then the timer goes off. You have a two-minute break where you just let your brain wander for two minutes. Then you do it again, and then in a group of three Pomodoros, and then you break for 10 minutes, and then you start again. It sounds very similar to what I'm doing, though. And I've, been, yeah. I've felt razor this week. A, a, razor. a lot of people follow that as a productivity technique. They sit down, they go, this is the task I'm going to do, and then they just do it. Nothing else, no disruptions. Often people use a mechanical timer on the desks. To make sure I stick to it, I have been using the timer on my phone. Right. Sounds good. Yeah. Look. Well, that's cool. 40 minutes. I've done that all week. It's been great, actually. And you can stay in your zone for 40 minutes. Nothing disturbs me in, uh, under any circumstance. That's cool. Um, and then... Yeah, it's been good. Anyway, we're getting off topic of the book, which tells us a lot about the book, I think. Yes, part four. So he starts off talking about flow and how he surfed his way out of Lyme disease. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I put here quite an interesting few pages, but what's his point? Yeah, it's all a bit theoretical too. And then it does start to get a little bit more serious. So he starts talking about flow. And I, I think flow is a fascinating subject for us as knowledge workers. God, then let's just redefine flow. I mean, we spoke about it, but just remind the readers what flow is about. It's that level, that state, that place where, and he actually talks about it, characteristics of flow. In fact, that's... It's that's, just about being in the zone, isn't it? You know, five years ago, it was called just being in the zone. He, he, well, no, it was actually 30 years ago, it was called flow. Was it right, phone? Back in 1970, when Mihaly Ching whose name I can't pronounce, which is very unlikely to struggle to pronounce a name, he wrote about it, I think, in 1970. Right. And wrote a seminal book called Flow. It's characterised by complete concentration, the merging of action and awareness a loss of sense of self, an altered sense of time, a paradox of control. You often feel in control of the uncontrollable. Autotelic experience, where the experience itself is rewarding, they're your key characteristics of flow. Where time disappears. Fair enough. 
And what he's saying is in flow, that's the point at which our productivity and our output and what we create do is at a level that is optimal, takes us to achieving the impossible. It's the flow that does it. You know, if you interviewed lots of these really theoretically top guys like Elon Musk, he probably spends a lot of time in flow. All those conditions will meet. He probably works for eight, nine, ten hours and then goes, Jesus Christ, is that the time? I don't know. He's offered to buy Twitter today, hasn't he? What's his obsession with Twitter? I don't know. He has said, if you don't let me buy it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell all my shares. So I don't think he really offered to buy it, did he? But anyway. I think he's just bored. I think literally that's the sort of thing he does when he's bored at work. Do you reckon I'm going to buy Twitter? I might do that, actually. I'll just wind Twitter up about buying them for a laugh. So on page 220... And then we've got flow triggers. Well, he talks about um, peak performance that ended up with the same blueprint using this book. Step one, find a passion and purpose. Step two, fortify passion with grit and goals. Step three, yeah. amplify the results with learning and creativity. Step four, use flow to turbo boost the whole process. That's actually sort of one of the best bits in the book. Yeah, it gets a little bit more practical. It's a shame you've got to read for 220 pages to find it. Yes, yes. So, so, so here we are. This state has six core physiological characteristics, and if all six show up, we can call that experience flow. Here's the full list. Best bit in the book. Yeah. Complete concentration, merge of action awareness. Good. So how does that help our audience flow? How? Do, I mean, the, the size says it all. It's just a completely... It's a theoretical book, isn't it? Because actually, if you think what our audience do, they sell stuff to people. Yeah. Well, some of them do. Some of them just try. Some of them don't even try. <laughs> but l- let's say we interviewed top seller. You know who my favourite person is. Let's say we interviewed her and saw her selling. Do you think when she's sat opposite a prospect, she's in a state of flow? Yeah. I would suspect so, because she's bloody good at selling stuff to people. Yeah. Or at least she must be, given the career that she's had. But can she consciously aim toward these six characteristics? No. And it doesn't really tell you how to get to those six characteristics, does it? So how does it help our people? Not a great deal, I don't think. I think you can. I mean, he talks about autonomy, curiosity, passion, and purpose, complete concentration and clarity of goals as flow triggers. So firstly, most people that we engage with can't have that autonomy. No. They're getting told to do what to do. Yep. Okay, yeah, lots of people get the autonomy to make decisions about the work they do on a day-to-day basis and they live and die by the results. And, you know, they either achieve target or they don't. They sell or they don't. Great, brilliant. But actually, if you're an employee of a company, more often than not, you don't really have real autonomy, do you? Rarely. People will say, oh, it's a f- treat it as your own franchise, but do exactly what I tell you to do. Correct. It's not really an environment of pure autonomy. In fairness, though, in Chapter 21, he talks about flow triggers, doesn't he? Yeah, that's that's what I'm reading now, these flow triggers. And then he talks about curiosity, passion, and purpose. And that's great and everything, right? And if LinkedIn is anything to go by, everybody works in every sales environment and in every job they're in with immense curiosity, passion, and purpose. Like, what is amazing is it appears that many people have found their utmost and highest possible calling in life in the jobs that they're in, Michael. Now, I don't buy that. What do you mean? Well, if you read, if you read a lot of the LinkedIn posts about some of the things people say about some of their jobs, you'd think actually they'd found complete spiritual nirvana. Yeah, they're just doing that to kiss the asses of their bosses. Of course they are. Great to be hosting. I'm just reading one now. 
great to be hosting a face-to-face meeting in London with our wonderful UK sales team. Come on. <laughs> right? And it, and I get it, you know, it, but it, it's all a sort of a bit, uh, here we go. And that's a wrap. Today, I call time on my most extraordinary five and a bit years with Company X. There are far too many people to thank. Hopefully, you all know who you are, and I hope we will reflect on our time together with the same fondness and pride I will. You'd think they'd made the White Album together, these guys. You know, let's get it right. You sold stuff that goes on phones for people to make signatures with this guy when they get parcels delivered. Give me a break. I'm reading the post. I'm reading the post here. He says, when you seek to disrupt or change the status quo, it requires vision, bravery, dedication, and talent. I've been blessed with visionary, brave, dedicated, and talented customers, colleagues, partners, and managers. The way he talks, you'd think he'd found his highest calling. My point is, very few people really are finding their highest calling in the work that they're doing. That can't be his... The way... It's bullshit, isn't it? Yes, of course it is, yes. But what this guy's saying is to find real flow, you have to have curiosity and passion and purpose. So what are you saying then, that it's impossible to get that? What I'm, what I'm saying? No, I'm not. And I'm saying, it's a, I, I'm saying that it's an extremely lucky professional person who gets to work in an environment where they have that amount of curiosity, passion and purpose. And if you've got that, my God, hang on. Because actually, yeah, most I think sales, that's a fair mo- comment, Johnny. And that's mo- most, comment. most sales jobs aren't going to give you curiosity, passion, and purpose. And particularly the more senior people get. If, if we got a list of, of candidates we work with that are on basic salaries of 100K or above, how many of them have got immense curiosity, passion, and purpose for that role? Not many. They will have drive. They've got enough passion and purpose to hit their target, I think is what you're Correct. saying. Correct. But it's not the passion and purpose to build electric cars. Now, the companies often do a good job, I think, of instilling passion and purpose in people. I think some companies do a very good job culturally of making people passionate and purposeful about the work. In healthcare, they're all purposeful. Oh, yeah, I'm saving lives. Shut up. You sell software that's shit. And they all drink the same Kool-Aid about it, right? But I think that's a, a key flow trigger and a trigger of performance. And yeah, I think some companies are good at it, but most really, passion and purpose, you're some dodgy little reseller. It's interesting that, isn't it, Johnny? Because I thought you quite liked this book, but if that's your view, which I do agree with, by the way, then nobody's going to get into flow, are Not they? many people. I think flow is... It goes back to the comment I made a couple of episodes ago about video games. Why are video games so popular? Because people don't get that experience of flow more often than not in their day-to-day work. Some people do. I'm lucky sometimes I drip in and out of flow. Sometimes I'm working on something and I go, bloody hell, where's the time gone? Whew. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, quite often I do. You know, so, so you and I were talking uh, off air about a prospect that I've been doing a lot of work with, and I said to you, you know, it's better than it was this time last year. I've just been caught up and captured in that this morning, and it's sort of taken a lot of my morning in and out of that. I've been in flow on that particular one client, yeah. 100%. And you drift been, in and out of flow, don't you? In the yeah, day. it's been interspersed by lots of not flow stuff, but that particular thing I have, that's for sure. Yeah, and you get stuff where you're really into it. You get a client and you just think, I'm into this. Yes. You're working on it. Well, you get it with hobbies, don't you? You get it with hobbies. You'll get it with golf, I'm sure, Johnny, when you're busting it up until you get angry and lose your golf ball. Yeah, or smash my club or something, yeah. 
But you'll have moments of a few holes where you've gone, wow, birdie, 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 par, five birdies in a row, check me out, or something. And you're in the zone and you can't do anything wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. you got absolute golden touch. And then the other one is complete concentration. No distractions, no multitasking. I also believe the modern workplace is just not set up for that. Uh, I think a lot of that is your setup, though. Yes. You've got a massive screen. You see, I hate the massive screen because it's just too big. There's too much stuff going on. It's interesting because I'm thinking of getting rid of my massive screen. It should be a productivity tool, but I don't think it is. I think it's making me less productive. Yeah, I mean, I personally don't have one because I think there's too, too much for me to look at. Let me just concentrate on one thing at a time. Yeah, I, th- I, it, it, I, I, I know. I, I have it set up with all sorts of stuff on it, and it's great and everything. It looks like brilliant at the weekend if I want to play some video games. But actually, I'm not as convinced it's made me as productive as I'd like to be. I think it's making me less... Well, it's a bit like when you're talking to a client and you find yourself looking at BBC Sport, you think, yeah, this is boring me now. That's because the client's boring. Yeah. And the situation's boring. Yeah, yeah, exactly. bbc.co.uk forward slash rugby league. All right, Saints have signed John Harper. What have they? Right, this client's boring me. Yeah, this client's boring. This job spec is boring. This is a boring opportunity. But, but Tony Robbins would say, that's your emotions telling you something, isn't it? Correct. And the minute I catch myself doing it... He would say, your subconscious mind is sending you a message that this isn't the right kind of client for you right now. Yeah, the minute I find myself doing that, I think, yeah, I'm out. Yeah. But that's the point, is the, the, we've got more opportunity for distraction than we've ever had. Well, Nir's book was good on that, wasn't it? I thought Nir Ayal's book was... Nir Ayal's book, yeah. And Nir Ayal's book is all about, in reality, getting into flow, isn't it? Not really. Uh, Nir Ayal's book is about not getting distracted and being able to concentrate. I don't think Nir Ayal was thinking about flow. I think if you wanted to get into flow and not be distracted, you could read Nir Ayal's book. But actually, we produce pretty good results, you know, being distracted. You know, how many good calls have you made whilst driving your car? Loads. Were you 100% concentrated on the call? No. Mike, I often make really, really good calls when I'm stood at my putting mat. That's the point then, isn't it? And I, can, I often listen very, very deeply stood at my putting mat really deeply. I actually often have better recall of the conversation when I'm not sat in front of my computer not making notes because all I'm doing is rolling putts and listening. Quite often if I meet a client and I don't want to look away from them, I don't take enough notes and I think, oh God, I've not taken enough notes. Then I'll go to wherever, like my car, you know, train, whatever, and I write my notes and I find when I don't take notes and I just listen, I take in much more information. Lots more. Yeah, it's a funny one, that, isn't it? That's my point, is I find I'm a much better listener when I'm not making notes. Miles better. The recall of the conversation is a lot better. But that temptation to not take notes, and taking notes is deemed a listening signal in a face-to-face meeting. Well, it's polite, isn't it? It's polite to take notes, really. But actually turning up and saying, I'm not going to make notes today because I'm going to listen rather than write. Yeah, I'm not going to take notes. I listen better without my notebook. Yeah, and then when I get back to my car, I'm going to sit down and write up the notes of the meeting of what we've talked about. Maybe we should do that. Maybe, I, maybe I'm going to start saying, right, I'm not going to make notes during this conversation. I'm just going to listen. Then at the end of it, we're going to agree the three action items that I need to remember. Right, just talking this through now, I'm going to try that next week. I'm going to start saying to people, during this conversation, I'm not going to make any notes. At the end of the call, we're going to agree the three things I need to write down. Well, I'm going to see a client on Wednesday. Will you try it? Yeah. So chapter 22, the flow cycle is all about stage one struggle. Optimal performance begins in maximum frustration. I've got to say, that is true of me, actually. What, you sort of get to that point of... Arr! Yeah, yeah. Get focused, get on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do the same. 
where you sat there in the morning, you think, oh, I'm not firing here. Come on. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that I lock my door downstairs so people can't come in. <laughs> I do. I lock my door. That's bad. Better yeah, I lock my door so people can't just walk into my office. Oh yeah, I'm looking for a power supply. No. Try to work. Yeah, I get a lot of that in my home office. A lot of that. I was negotiating a I was negotiating a package for a candidate two hours ago. Mrs. Graham walked in here looking for a USB to USB C adapter. I was like, what are you doing? In the middle of negotiating a package for a guy? Mad, isn't it? Mad. Anyway, we're getting towards the end of the book now, really. We are. He talks about group flow, which I do think is interesting. He talks a lot about really some stuff that's obvious but not obvious. Little things like starting your day with two hours on your hardest task, doing your diary the night before. I mean, how how many times? Always, 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 always. I have my dinner every night. I'm very lucky because my wife cooks. We get this Green Chef delivery box, which is like a really healthy delivery box. Can you not tell my jawline's looking very defined, Michael? I don't look at your jawline, Johnny. I think you need to stop going on about it. It sounds weird. Right, okay. Well, I've lost a lot of weight because we do this Green Chef thing where basically they give you dinner without any rice or bread. It's a bit shit. <laughs> but I have lost weight. <laughs> uh, but I have lost weight. Anyway, after I eat my tea, I always come back into my office and I just plan my day for the next day. I always plan my day. Because that's how I was taught to do it when I was 25 and it kind of makes sense because I don't like the idea of getting up in the morning and thinking, what am I going to do today? Completely agree with you. I won't leave my office until my diary is planned. Under no circumstance. Just as a question to the world of LinkedIn and the audience and the people that listen to the show and all of you, how many people plan their day the night before and how many people plan it in the morning and how many of you don't plan it at all from a scheduling hour by hour, this is what I'm doing perspective? What do you reckon? Do you think Elon Musk plans his day? Ooh. Yeah. I still get the impression he might not. I think he's in a different place because he has other people to do things for him. I mean, let's get it right. If anything needs doing, he's got people to do it, hasn't he? Yes, that's very true. So his day plan will be a list of shit he wants to delegate to others that day and a list of tasks for which he wants to hold people accountable that day and metrics. I'd say it's interesting. I was talking to a sales director earlier and we got talking about the good old days, early 2000s, and what he did and didn't, what he used to say to people, salespeople, and what he couldn't say now. And uh, I got talking to him about diaries and he went, oh, I used to have a paper diary, day per page. He said, yeah, me too. I said, I can remember it being thrown across the office one day. He went, mate, I used to do that all the time. I said, what do you reckon happened if you got somebody's diary and threw it across the office? He said, Mike, there's no chance I could get somebody to write in a diary. No. They'd literally look at me like I was an idiot. No. And I said, what do you reckon that tells us? He said, I'll tell you what it tells us, Mike, is the market's too easy at the minute to sell stuff. And, you know, you said this in a few posts and what have you. I think that all of this stuff, the art of the impossible, it's all great and everything, but the market's so good at the minute that people don't need to read it. No. But when the market's bad... It'll be people that have those characteristics without knowing it who will do well. Correct. Or survive. There will be a sorting. I agree completely. There'll be a really big sorting of the ones that really focus on the craft and the ones that haven't had to. And it will be a hard process. The ones who who wrote in paper diaries because they knew, if I write in a paper diary and have a good analogue system, it'll be easy when I transfer to a digital one. But even 10 years ago, we found it hard to get people to write in paper diaries as managers. And I would say to them, you're going to use a paper diary for three months. 
because you're going to learn how to manage your diary. And then when you've done that, it'll be a lot easier to use it in an electronic format. They think you're an idiot. Oh, mate, I've had a meeting with a colleague this morning and I was very surprised where we've talked about adding tasks of things to do in Asana and the thought of actually adding her own tasks of basically she'd left a message for somebody. And I've said, right, where are you going to remind yourself to follow up on that now? And there's a deafening silence on the call. Now we use Asana for task management, project management, da, 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 da. It never occurred to her that she could have her own tasks and create a time delimited note of, has that candidate come back to me about that? That's surprising because I know the person. But that's because nobody's ever taught that person how to manage a paper diary. Good point. Interesting. But I know your kids have diaries. My daughter will tell you what her social plan is. It's hilarious because all, all she has to think about right now is a couple of minor admin items and her incredibly detailed social life. But her social life is all in her diary. We are going to Club X at time Y on date Z. Because she knows how to use diary because I've made her. Do you know what's interesting is, uh, so my eldest honey, she'll say, can I have such and such? And I'll go, yep, but only if you put it in your diary to remind me on Wednesday. Just as a pure exercise of writing yeah. in your diary. <laughs> yeah. And then Wednesday comes along and she reminds you. Correct. And then you go, yeah, cool, that's fine. There's, there's your yeah. reward. And it's, it's never anything massive, you know, but just to get her into that mindset of doing it. Anyway, let's get back to his book, Johnny. What do you think about, he talks a lot about active recovery. He basically, he, he talks a lot about the optimal flow states. He talks about active recovery, sauna, yoga, stretching. I mean, you're doing your active recovery, aren't you, every day? Yeah, we're in my 40 and five minutes, yeah. Um, what do I think of it? That, that's what I think of it, just a big sigh, really. Meh. As I said at the start of this show, meh. Meh. Just think, yeah. I'm looking forward to getting back into a sales book. I've had a break from sales books now. I can't wait to do a sales book. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Right, Mark's out of 10. Well, he's guess six for me. I'm going to give it a six because it just wasn't practical enough. Great book, really interesting, not practical enough. To be clear, it's a really, really good book. A superb book. If you're somebody who wants to understand the theoretical side of what makes people winners, that is a good book. That's like a nine, nine and a half, maybe a ten. If you're somebody who wants a process that you can follow, it's just not that. That's not what it is. No. Disappointing in the end. But it's good. You know, it's really well researched. You can tell this guy is a top guy. You know, I don't know how many pages. It's 200 nods, 200 well, it's nearly 300 actually looking at it. Yeah, it was about, I think it was about eight hours worth of audio, but. Yeah, so, so it's 281 pages plus notes. You know, there's no padding in there. None of it's nonsense. No. Nope. It's just not really, you know, what I want from a manual. It's not really what Ivor wants from a manual, is it? No, and it's it, Ivor. <laughs> Michael has logged into this call today, listeners, as Ivor. Yeah. Ivor Biggin. Did you ever used to watch The Simpsons? I used to love that when uh, Bart <laughs> used to phone the bar. <laughs> um, anyway. Well, it's, it's there's the old, um, I think it's from Porky's, the original. Has anybody seen Mike Hunt? <laughs> Still makes me laugh now. They ring up the bar and, and ask for him, and then the bar guy shouts out. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But point being about this book is, you know, it's a bad manual, but it's a good book. It's theoretical. It's like, yeah, I can imagine a load of university professors in psychology sitting around and loving it. But actually, what do we place? What do we deal with? We sales people that follow a course and take action, and it isn't that. Yeah. It's the sort of book that have given you at university that was non-course related, and you'd read it and think, yeah, I know all about how to be a top boy now when I leave uni. 
But actually, really, in the real world, it's other stuff to do. So for me, it's a six. If somebody rang me today and said, should I read it? I'd say there's other reads that will impact you more. I'd say only read it if you've read lots of other books. Yes. It's an adjunct, not a must read. Mm. And at that, our next book is Michael, The Qualified Sales Leader by John McMahon. Now, I've read quite a lot of this uh, already. Um, I won't tell you too much what I think about it, other than he's got a top track record. I think he's a top guy. The demand, the demand from people for this book and for us to cover this book on the show, I would say is the greatest level of demand we've had from... Really? Yeah. You don't see it because you don't see much on the Discord group because Alex gets it all. Have you read much of this book yet? No, I'm going to start this weekend. I've read a lot of it, probably two thirds of it. Right. Pretty decent. Yeah, pretty decent. Right. So it's the qualified sales leader, proven lessons from a five-time CRO. I would say he's an excellent guy. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. What somebody said to me, a candidate said to me last week was that it's just full of great stories. So it might be that we can't make three shows out of it because it's going to be a good storybook about selling. That's a very accurate thing to say. Completely agree with that. And at that, listeners, we will see you next week for part one of The Qualified Sales Leader. Bye-bye.